Welcome to the Sport Mind podcast series, where I sit down with world-leading guests and unlock the secrets to mental strength in sports. Today, before you dive into the episode, I have something special for all listeners. Are you struggling with self-doubt, overwhelmed by performance anxiety, battling inconsistency, or facing fear of failure in your sport? Are you looking to overcome these obstacles and conquer the mental game? Well, I've got just the toolkit for you. An ebook I wrote called Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, which you can get today completely free of charge. This comprehensive ebook is a treasure trove of practical and actionable strategies tailored for athletes who want to unblock the most common mental obstacles. Each chapter offers digestible advice, providing immediate tools you can apply to enhance your mental game. Readers have been raving about the insights and the transformations they've experienced with this guide. Teresa from California emailed recently saying, Your guide is brilliantly helpful. I've just been getting into it and I'm truly excited to use it to help with the obstacles I face regularly. I wrote this ebook to be concise, punchy, and most importantly, practical for immediate application. And the best part? It's completely free. A token of your commitment to your mental and athletic growth. So click on the link in the show notes right now to grab your copy of Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport or simply visit the SportMind Hub by googling SportMind Hub. Equip yourself today with the knowledge and tools to face those mental challenges head on. Now, let's jump into today's episode and get ready to elevate your mental game to the next level. Hey ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the next episode of these podcast series. On today's show, I welcome Simon Mundy. I am a huge, huge fan of Simon Mundy. I feel so honored and lucky to be able to actually have him on my show. He runs Don't Tell Me The Score podcast. It's easily my most listened to podcast and the guests he has on are just phenomenal. Guests such as Johnny Wilkinson, Gary Lineker, Sir Alistair Cook, Kelly Holmes, Catherine Granger, Damon Hill, Rick Flair, Boris Becker. The list just goes on and on and on. The who's who of sport he has had on his show. But it's way more than just sport, his podcast. It, it looks at all areas of life, gets in people like Andy Puddicombe from Headspace, who I really, really resonated with in his, in that show. And just the format of what he does is is inspiring. It's brilliant. It's amazing. And I just took a massive punt and reached out to him, um, connected over Twitter. And very quickly, he replied and was very keen to jump on the show with me. So I've come to this one as a just a massive fan and a little bit awestruck and starstruck when he when he said that he would want to come on. So I did fanboy quite a little bit on this one, but hopefully you will enjoy my chat with Simon Mundy. Uh, just an overall really, really cool guy. Uh, we have a lot in common talk a lot about mindfulness and how we reflect on ourselves um, and, and go deep with a whole bunch of things. So it's related to sport, but this one is much more related to character development, life. He talks about some anxiety issues, some depression, some um, when he when he had insomnia while he was sleeping and really struggled to get to sleep and things he did with that. So he's a, he's a massively deep thinker, really interesting guy. We go into a whole world of non-duality, which is which is just fascinating for me. It opened up a whole cool way of looking at things. I, I was interested in this anyway, but he's really big on that. But in regard to his podcast, I would highly recommend you go and listen to these. Um, the the knowledge he brings to it, what he extracts from his guests, the life lessons that I take from them on a on a weekly basis. It's my regular podcast for going running or working out, and I, and I just let it all wash over me. 
so he is doing some amazing things in in the world at the moment uh, he's busy writing his book and and by the time this comes out the book might be out and i believe he's taking his don't tell me the score podcast um, privately so i'm not sure when that's going to happen but he's been working at the bbc for 11 years now he was the sports presenter at Radio 1. He progressed to being the reporter at the Wimbledon Championships in 2018. The Don't Tell Me the Score podcast is the highest rated, I believe, podcast or sports podcast out there at the moment. And you can see why. So as I said, genuinely surprised, honored, flattered that he was able to reply so quick to be able to jump on the show. And most people I come in contact with on a regular basis probably know about him because I uh, <laughs> I bang on about his podcast a lot and, and the guests he's had on. And I've just got a huge list of them that I need to get through. And I do tend to recommend them to a lot of other people as well. So hopefully you enjoy my version and my chat with uh, an expert in the podcasting field and uh, a, a big name in regard to the BBC in regard to reporting. So please welcome to the show, Simon Mundy. Simon Mundy, welcome to the next episode of podcast series. How are you getting on? Jesse, it's lovely to be here. Uh, I'm very good, thank you very much. Yeah, I've got me coffee in hand. Uh, I was allowed to have a lion this morning. It's been a busy week, but I'm uh, delighted to chat to you. Amazing. And genuinely, I, this this for me is such an honor um, with the people I work with, your podcast. I, I'm signposting people to episodes all the time. There's there's so much you can extract from the work you're doing. So yeah, me reaching out to you, what, a couple of weeks ago um, over Twitter and just the person that you are just replied to me very quickly. We got in a conversation and here we are today. So a massive bit of gratitude from me to you. Um, you know, they you know, big fan of your work and we're going to get into that. But I think a good place for us to start is for those who aren't aware of you, but within my field, most people will be aware of you. Um, could you give us a bit of a, a background to your sporting career and your journey? Sporting career. Okay. <laughs> oh, this is a good, I don't have been asked this yet. So my sporting career. So I grew up in a sporty family. My dad was a pretty good rugby player. I think he the joke in the family was that if he'd have been a couple of inches taller, he would have played for Scotland. Okay. He, he played against people who went on Lions tours and that kind of thing. But he he doesn't have, still doesn't have as a golfer now, that winning mental attitude. Um, and he certainly definitely passed it on to me, unfortunately. <laughs> so my dad was a rugby player. My mum is a very natural, naturally talented sportswoman. So she was a runner. She's one of these people who can turn her hand to pretty much anything actually. So she was a good tennis player and she now is taking up golf after moaning at my father for a couple of decades. She's taken it up and, and very quickly become better than him. I think he's probably won about two trophies in his life. She wins a, a hatful every year. It's amazing. So I, I was brought up with mini rugby. That was the first sport I got into. And I really liked rugby. That was obviously fulfilling my father's passion primarily but I did really love it I still really love rugby um but it was tennis that that completely was just my passion when I we moved when I was probably seven or eight and there was I was really fortunate in that there was a tennis club um a short walk from my house you go down an alleyway there's a door there over the cricket pitch tennis courts and I got taken down there a few times by my mum and thought that this was kind of fun and I and I still remember or at least this is the memory I perhaps have created in my head, but connecting with the forehand properly and thinking, wow, 
that felt great. And from that point, I just became an absolute tennis nut. Um, Wimbledon each year. So my parents, funnily enough, got married in the church near Wimbledon that you can see whenever they do the panoramic shots, you can see that that's the the church they got married in. We used to go to Wimbledon a, a fair bit each year, ground pass, some matches. I went actually, my first ever tennis match I saw was Boris Becker against Ivan Lendl in the Wimbledon semi-final in 1989. So showing my age, but I was only a little, a little guy and it was meant to be the ladies final, but the, because of rain, it got delayed. And it was Becker against Lendl and Becker was my, I mean, was my absolute hero. I used to get more upset when Boris lost at Wimbledon than when England or anyone lost at the World oh, Cup really? by a mile, okay. by a mile, right? <laughs> and and I can still remember he won in a five set thriller. I can I can picture it so clearly him hitting the ball out of court when he won. Um, so I just became absolutely obsessed with tennis. I um, my, every Christmas my mum would get me the Wimbledon highlights video. Nice. Every Sunday back in the day, I would get up to watch Transworld Sport to watch three minutes of tennis. And I'd record it and just watch it again and again and again and again. Wow. I'd go on CFAX and just check the results. I'd read the Daily Telegraph newspaper. There was a um, journalist called John Parsons who was an excellent tennis journalist. So I would always read it. I My, my knowledge of tennis, certainly when I was younger, was just ridiculous. Mm. And still now. So I know any winner finalist and most scores from Wimbledon from about 1971 onwards go on give me a quick pick a year pick a quick year wow that is that is okay I'll pick my birth year 1983 that's an easy one well it's so here we go so obviously that was the the year that John McEnroe won his second title and he beat Chris Lewis the Kiwi in the final in straight sets Chris Lewis, that is a name I would not have been able to pick out of any Let me just check it is Chris Lewis. Yeah. Anyway, it certainly says something, Lewis. It's, anyway, he won in straight sets and he thrashed him. So that was that was the year. It would have been Martina would have won the women's as well, of course. Really? So I, I remember my life really through what happened in Wimbledon in any given year. And I just spent all of my time down at this tennis club playing tennis. Uh, at the same time, I pl- played rugby to a reason reasonable school level you know I was in my my a team up until the the Colts a team once I got into the final year and was unfortunately dabbling in smoking and all sorts of other (laughs) untoward activities and and my gaze was not necessarily completely sport focused um I, I was playing in the seconds and I let myself down there but um but yeah so I so played rugby but tennis tennis was really my thing and uh, carried on playing tennis eventually I think I learned how to win probably when I was about 22 I won my club tournament then before then I would have this uncanny knack of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory against players um so yes uh I I kind of learned how to overcome that self-defeating behavior to a certain degree Mm. um played a bit of golf as well so and played golf now and and now I just um tennis I still love um play golf, run, keep fit, got into my calisthenics, I think it's called yes. now, body weight stuff now. So, you know, stay fit, love to walk, love watching all sport. Don't support a football team. Very odd for a, a sports reporter. Um, but that's it. So that's sort of potted history of my sporting sporting background. I'm, I'm keen to explore this, this, this tennis passion of yours because the way you speak sounds like um, a lot of top athletes, you know, the way they get obsessed with the sport, the way they really immerse themselves in it. 
So where, where did it go in your junior career into regard to tournaments? Were you thinking about pursuing it as a career at one point? And ultimately, why did it maybe not pan out to become a career? In terms of playing? Yes, yeah. I don't think I was good enough, to be quite honest. I think um, I think I was probably actually, with rugby and tennis, I think I was probably better than I believed. Mm-hmm. I went to a school reunion um, a couple of years ago and the first team winger was there. And he said, I remember him sat next to me and he said, you were one of the most talented players, if not the most talented player, okay. but you didn't train particularly hard. And I was I was a real gobby type at school, always in trouble with teachers. Fortunately, you know, never really bad stuff, but just, just gobby and a bit sort of rebellious, shall we say. Um, but really, I think that was probably a bit of a defence mechanism. And, okay. and, and so I... I, he said, you know, why didn't you train that hard? And I think it was probably a lack of confidence, actually, that, that I didn't necessarily believe I belonged. And, and had I had that belief, I think I probably could have been a better player, certainly at rugby. Mm. Um, Tennis-wise, I did play tournaments. So I used to play county tournaments. And if I give, I'll give you an example, actually, of uh, that illustrates the sort of lack of belief or how my belief would get in my own way. I played against this guy. I, mem- I remember his first name. He was called Peter. And I think he was, the- he was the county number one. And in my school team, I, in my sort of lowest, so my prep school team, we had an incredibly strong team. So we won the Surrey Cup. We, and we were going on to the Nationals. We were a great team. I was the number two. The number one was a guy called Stuart Rhodes who, was a, who played to a national level. Mm-hmm. And I had watched Stuart Rhodes play this guy, Peter, in a school, t- in a school match. And lose 6-4. Now, I remember this guy, Peter, we were only 12 or something like that. And he had one of these sort of stylish games, Federer-esque, beautiful single-handed backhand. I, I remember just standing there and admiring him, thinking, oh, I wish I could play tennis like this guy. Mm. Fast forward a year, I'm playing in the Surrey, Surrey, whatever it was, closed tournament, and I'm drawn against Peter. Okay. And some of his mates, one of whom I'd previously been mates with, but he'd moved school and so was now more on his side as you as you get at that age right was saying you've got no chance you you won't win and so this is all there and I won the first set fairly comfortably and I think I was probably four two up in the second he wasn't playing particularly well Mm -hmm. but I should have won that match but I had this belief beforehand and during that I wasn't going to win right so as a result I self-sabotaged to the point where because I believed I wasn't going to win, I almost, I made that a reality. I couldn't win. I couldn't let myself win. I just started choking for want of a better word and just almost felt like it wasn't my right or my place to win. So like I said, this was a, a bit of a limiting thing for a long time when I was, when I was playing that I didn't, I was held back by the same, I think, lack of killer instinct that my father had and has. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was never really an option in terms of thinking I would go pro. Um, they always said I had lazy footwork. Okay. I've got quite nice strokes, but I think, and also being playing at my club. So I was the junior club champion, but it was, it what it was probably big fish, small pond, to be honest. It wasn't one of those real performance clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, I could have joined actually one near where I live now. Um, and that may have changed things. 
mm-hmm. being amongst the very best players. But I didn't choose to do that. I just liked being able to go to a club that was a walk from my house. And it was just a refuge and just something I love to do. And now, actually, in hindsight, I'm, I'm quite grateful for that. I think that we so often think that or people can think that if you've got if you're good at something or you love doing something, you know, you've got to take it to the next level. But for me, I just loved playing for the sake of playing and that passion for tennis you know, I'm not going to get any better now, particularly with my dodgy hips, but that passion is still there. That ability to lose myself in, nice. in the, um, in the process of playing. That's, that's what it's all about actually for me, mm. rather than having to necessarily win. And that's what I'm arguing a lot in, in, in my book. Yeah. Well, I, I, there's something later on. I, I, I wanted to talk to you about, about beliefs, the language we tell ourselves, the, the stories we create in our head and, and how that leads to certain things. And it sounds like you've got a little thing there going on that I want to explore at some yeah, um, but let's fast forward a, a tiny bit in regard to your your tennis, your Im- immersion with tennis, the passion for it. Um, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like it was it was a really great career move to be starting to commentate on Wimbledon, reporting at Wimbledon. Can yeah. you just paint a picture of of where you went from that passion of playing and loving tennis and how it led to the career and where you're at now, roughly? Yeah. So, like I said, Wimbledon and tennis were was my thing so I remember any any given year by what happened in Wimbledon in that year if someone says oh I was born in 84 I just go back to okay McEnroe beat Connors that year okay where was I and I can relate my own life to it so I had this huge passion and Wimbledon in particular obviously because tennis was not on the television except for Wimbledon when it's wall-to-wall television so it's the high always been the highlight of my year has been that Wimbledon fortnight first going home from school and just watching it Mm-hmm. And then later on um, developing that. So when I was at school, whilst I n- never seriously contemplated a professional sporting career, we did do a psychometric test where it was made clear that I would make a journalist. Okay. That my, <laughs> I, I remember I had a, my score on talking was, was high. I think it was possibly the highest. And they recommended being a journalist. So I'd all, and this guy, John Parsons, who I mentioned from the Daily Telegraph, if someone had said to me, what do you want to do? I would have said that. I want to write about tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I worked at a newspaper in my summer holidays for work experience. I think when I was 16, did broadcast journalism at, at university. Um, and it was just, if anyone asked me what was my passion, it was always, it was always just tennis. Mm-hmm. It tennis. It was either writing for a tennis magazine or anything like that. And then um, I actually took a bit of a detour. I did sales for a few years, but then I got back. I did broadcast journalism at university, went to Australia, New Zealand, came back, got a little sidetracked, did sales for a few years, realized after a while the sales though by the way was at a tennis magazine okay nice <laughs> and everyone was it was the Good tennis advice. magazine that i read since i was um seven i've still got the copies downstairs from like when sampras won wow. in 1990 you know that shows how <laughs> ridiculous i am and um so I, I worked at this tennis magazine but i just sensed that it wasn't my lad i always say my ladder wasn't up against the right wall mm-hmm. and then i did some interviews for um for them during Wimbledon, they would get me to, to to represent the magazine talking about stuff. And I did one for Radio Wimbledon. And the guys at Radio Wimbledon, like they got back in touch and said, you know, you're good. Like you should, 
you should consider this. And I just had this like, what am I doing? This yeah. is what I trained in. I was a, I trained to be a broadcast journalist and here I am not doing it. So I um, asked around and found out that there was this radio station not far from me where I could do work experience um, or rather I could, I could work for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I rang up and I said, have you got any spots? And they said, yes, funnily enough, we've got a guy who's leaving the sports show on a Saturday afternoon. If you want to do that, we can't pay you, but you can do that. Nice. So for a year, alongside my normal job, I was working Monday to Friday. And then on Saturday, I would drive to this radio station and do the, the sport bulletins and the news bulletins. At the end of that time, I then was in a position to actually apply for a job back in radio. So I got a job out in the sticks um, in, in Ipswich, funnily enough, which is a place I would probably not have chosen. No offense to anyone from Ipswich that I probably would not have chosen to go to had I not got a job there. But I ended up having to take a big pay cut. Mm-hmm. And I knew then, though, that my ladder was up against the right wall. I, I loved I just had this sense of, oh, yes, right. I'm back on I'm back on the track that I should be on. And um, and I was probably had been for a couple of years before this, um, during the time that I was doing this work experience on a Saturday, getting in touch with Radio Wimbledon saying, can I have a chance? Can I have a chance? Can I have a chance? 2007, they said, okay, um, the guy who normally does it, he's not around for the first week. You can come and do it. Right. And I still remember the first morning. So because I was doing the breakfast show, I'd have to be there really early. So no crowds in, nothing like that. And I still remember, uh, let's, it must have been, let's say, 7 a.m., being sat up on Henman Hill. And it's still called Henman Hill, by the way, anyone. Oh, is it? Yeah, oh, yeah, no, no, it's not. Guys, forget that. I mean, listen, <laughs> each to their own, but Henman's the original. Um, so up on Henman Hill, I'm just looking around thinking, wow, yeah. this is the coolest thing ever. I can't believe I'm being paid to talk about tennis <laughs> you know on for Wimbledon at Wimbledon amazing this place that is the, my mecca I th- that feeling I had sat on the hill was one of just oh wow this is nothing could top this and I've had it once since which again was at Wimbledon um so yeah I, and they they just liked what I did because I was so enthusiastic because I knew my tennis inside out mm-hmm. because I liked doing silly interviews and I just had loads of ideas and they said right okay yeah the other guy forget him you're in <laughs> uh, and from that point on so I did three years at Radio Wimbledon and then uh, worked at Wimbledon for BBC Radio One for nine eight nine years and then 2018 2019 I've been part of the TV coverage mm. and then was expected obviously this last year to be one of their so 2019 was probably the year when I was made to be one of the primary TV reporters at Wimbledon. And that was another one of those moments. I was sat in the, in the room, okay, watching all, all the big screens where everything's being directed. You're looking out over the court on your left where um, John Isner beat, Nick, uh, beat that French chap uh, in the longest, 76, 76, whatever it was. And... Um, Looking that over the left, you've got Sue Barker, you've got Claire Balding, Boris Becker's walking in, John John Lloyd's walking in. Uh, they're coming up saying really nice stuff. Andrew Castles, you know, and it was just Tim Henman sat on my left, wow. and I was just sat there. And I did the the men's um, what was it? The men's tournament review ahead of the final, the men's final. So Federer against Djokovic, and I remember sat in this chair watching on the screen as my report went out. And I had that same feeling that I had 
sat on the hill 11 years previously of like, I can't believe this. That my inner child, the nine-year-old me, would not believe. I still get tingles now just talking about it. The the, the, the ten-year-old me that yeah. that would have said it would have probably locked off this arm, my non-playing arm, to be able to do this um, would was just absolutely ecstatic inside me. I almost, yeah, I, I, if I'd have really let myself go, there probably would have been a, a solitary tear rolling down my cheek. But um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, so to be able to sort of, to be able to translate my passion for tennis into a career, not as a player, it is something that I remind myself is pretty special because I remember actually a lot of my friends from when I was young remind me of this. There was a guy when I was probably 13, 14. And he, I think his passion was music. And we, we said, oh, we'll set up a magazine when we're older. <laughs> music and tennis mix. Probably wouldn't have done that, right? Let's be honest, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, come on, there's, some, there's a niche there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And anyway, he got in touch with me some years later and said, I can't believe you're actually doing your passion. Whereas obviously he was, I don't know what he was, but he wasn't mm. doing what he wanted to do. And I, and I think it's probably quite rare I'm sure you know you 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 know as well. You've followed your passion. You know it's it's a rarity. I think yeah. a lot of people don't necessarily even know what theirs is for a long time, mm-hmm. and and certainly a lot of people don't aren't fortunate enough to sort of follow it. So to 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 be able to do that has been yeah. very very special. But it's just been gutting last year not not being able to do Wimbledon, and then this year um, they I'm provisionally booked, but who knows what the tournament's yeah. going to look like. Yeah, and then it's going to be a bit, bit touch and go. Yeah. And then by that point, and then because I'm leaving the BB or my terms of engagement with the BBC have changed, who knows whether they'll use me again anyway, but, mm. but worst case scenario, I've done it and I've done the TV there. So absolute worst case, yeah. I've, I've done what I would, yeah. the little me would have loved to have done. What a brilliant story. And I, and I can just see you lighting up as you talk yeah, about yeah. it. And you, you're getting animated. And yeah, it just, it just gives gives me enthusiasm. And I just love that. Well, I, I heard a great quote, must have been about a year or two ago is, and again, it's linked to passion and linked to following what you, what you want. And this quote kind of challenged it a bit. It says, don't worry about your passion, do what energizes you. And, and I, I love that because you know what? It's it, as a 10 year old boy, it was energizing you, you watching the matches, recording Transworld sport, replaying that, that was where your energy was being directed. And, you know, it sounds like you then just harnessed that energy and kept going with it. And yeah. it led you to this amazing place. So yes, I'm all, all for following your passion, but I like that rephrasing of it a little bit going, actually, you know what, where, where your energy is could be even more powerful than your passion. So who was that? Was that Cal Newport who did that? Oh man, I can't remember. Cause I think I've seen that. Cause I, I, I like with all these things and as someone who I know has similar should we say spiritual or, or presence or non-dual out, out thought beliefs around me or ways of looking at things. Language is so funny because it's, it's all just signposts. So someone could say resilience and it mean it definitely means this. And then someone else would say, no, actually it, it means this or grit and, and interchange. And to me, following your passion and following, following what energizes you, that really is the same thing. Hmm. How do you know if something's your passion? It energizes you. That to me is the, it, it's perhaps passion may be something idealistic, but I think that, but you're right. It's, mm. it's more of a feeling. Mm. And so even with the radio or, or how, because obviously tennis isn't the only thing I do now. It It's just having that feeling that yes, this is right. As opposed to this isn't quite right. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, so now, as a sports reporter, when I was at the BBC, um, working for Radio One for many years, when I first started there, as you know, in this country, football is number one. Mm-hmm. And I don't support a football team. And I've never, ever fallen in love with football. I, I, I can watch it. I enjoy it. But it's not a genuine passion for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I tried to, first of all, I thought I've got to hide the fact that I don't support a football team for a long time. Okay. And, and actually coming, realizing that that was stupid was a mm-hmm. kind of turning point for me. But also I would, I would go to all the biggest matches. So I went to the World Cup in Brazil in 2014. Any, any England international, I'd be there. And, and when I go to, to Wembley, if you're a journalist at Wembley, you get, you get a lovely dinner, you, lovely coffees, desserts all this kind of stuff you're surrounded by all the big names of uh, journalism right and and i would sit down there and i'd go right i'm i I need to get to a point where i can commentate on football Mm -hmm. so i would i'd be sitting there watching the watching the football like forcing right come on be interested (laughs) interested. and most of the times by half time i'd be watching one of federer's old matches on youtube brilliant (laughs) (laughs) because and and i realized it's just it's not it's not there that that feeling in was not there for me and so that i often would be asked do you want to do final score do you want to do these football and and in fact i had screen tests for sky sports news a number of times which obviously um obviously football orientated and one time so i got two screen tests the first time the guy said your teeth are really distracting what these things i what i think he's jealous i think look at these things two years of braces for these puppies um and so the first time he told me that i should perhaps have my teeth filed down which was a bit hard but then the second time he said we really like you da 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 if there's anything that comes up same guy mm-hmm. <laughs> forgot who i was no mention of the teeth the second time around yes. and he said if anything comes up next season we will you would love to use you and there was part of me rather if i'd really been passionate about it i would have chased that mm-hmm. but part of me was like this isn't right mm-hmm. this isn't right and so i think what you talk about you can have many passions and to varying degrees mm-hmm. okay. but to me it is it's that it is that energize if you if you want to put it that way that that feeling of this is right as it, it's intuition isn't it it's following it's the it's the cliche it's following your heart does yeah. this feel like the right way to go or not mm-hmm. and not being too planning ahead it's like just bob and weave yeah follow your heart little little side step here little side step there and it, if, as long as you do that i think you, yeah. you enter go in the right direction and i can't ignore mine mm-hmm. like it, it's really a strong feeling i get i think some people perhaps are less sensitive to it, but I'm very sensitive to it. So mm. I find it really sort of crushing when I don't listen yeah. to it. Um, honest, that 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 for me is is amazing how you put that. And yeah, just the language, just the reframing of the word passion to energy. I think I needed to hear that personally at that point. Yeah. Where I was I was facing a certain career path, and I was like, actually. I thought that was my passion, but it wasn't giving me the energy and I, I pivoted and that made a huge difference. And I think that's absolutely right. It's that thinking, isn't it? Exactly. Passion can maybe be something that we idealize, but mm-hmm. like you say, oftentimes it's, it's no, it's, it's, it's because our, our thoughts can lead us on a merry dance, right? As you well know. Um, and uh, often it, as Eckhart Tolle, as you, I know you're a fan of, as he says, if it's between your thoughts and your feelings, go with your feelings. Mm-hmm. So energizing, if I think it's just what, like with all things, it's what resonates with you. So I actually think that's a that's a good. And do you want very just quickly, Jesse, on this because I've just written a bit a chapter 
talking about following your passion. So I'm now going to slip in about energizing. So thank you. I'm just going to write that down. Perfect. Go for it. Man. I've, I've, I'll credit you. I'll credit you. That I can have one word. No, no, it's not even my quote, but no. Well, just on that last bit as well, I might send you a link to this. Um, have you have you seen that Tim Minchin speech where he goes back and gives a speech um to in Australia? To- I have. I can't remember it, but I have seen it. Yeah, remind me. I've got it, it written on my phone in my notes as my big bold. It's the like first thing I see. It's it's um, be micro ambitious, you know, don't think too far ahead in the future. Cause you might miss that shiny bright thing out the corner of your eye, basically immerse yourself in the moment. Be, he doesn't use the word passionate, but he's going, I just love that idea of being micro ambitious, work with energy and verve on, on the task you are immersed in. He's very much along those lines. Do you know what? That's, I love that's that. such a, um, a, an important point. And I don't know if you've listened to. Uh, so I recorded an episode with a guy called David Epstein. Oh, who's written, well, I might just grab a couple of his literally both his books are over there. So you got you got range, range and talent code. I'm uh, not talent code. Um, um yeah, another one. Sports yeah, sports gene. So range for me was transformative. And so I mentioned that I spent those years doing sales mm-hmm. for a long time. I had that down as a waste of time, mm-hmm. and almost tried to cover it up in my career looking backwards. And then he really transformed the way I looked at it. And I think I've spoken to listeners of my podcast who get in touch with me, who've had similar things where they feel like, oh, they weren't necessarily going in the right way. And so that was wasted time. But actually, I now look at that. And actually, I'm grateful I did that time because first of all, it's made me far more appreciative. Having that contrast between when I wasn't on the right path to when I was Mm -hmm. makes me much more in tune with that energizing feeling. Um, and also, I think a lot of people who go straight into journalism, particularly the BBC, no offense to them, can be a bit institutionalized. Yep. Whereas I think coming outside and perhaps bringing even some of that sales outlook has to some degree informed mm. um, what I've done. But I always, he talked about five year plans. And, and I remember lots of people would say, oh, I've got a five year plan. And I was always felt bad that I didn't have a five year plan. I'm lazy. I don't have a five year plan. And he, he, it's like no, it's 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 nonsense. You know, your feelings change. The person you are now is likely to be not very. You can't you can't tell who you're going to be in five years. Mm-hmm. And so he very much was like that. Tim mentioned just bob and weave, bob and weave. And I think that's whenever anyone gets in touch with me now, I'm like, you don't. First of all, you don't need to be on your path at 20, 25, even thirty. It's whenever it happens. But bob and weave in the short term, and just follow what just the forks in the road there are so many just follow it just try and and if you get on the wrong one reevaluate and get on the other one but it's yeah that 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 micro idea is great yeah, micro ambitious and, and i think what i also got from that and, and personal experience you i think you meet so much more interesting people in those in those moments where you're more immersed and you're bobbing and weaving as you say rather than going i'm five years down the line and i'm almost gonna just not pay attention to anything around me because i've got this tunnel vision and yeah just, and well so johnny cool. wilkinson So Johnny Wilkinson's got this mantra that I love, which is to explore rather than to control. Wow. Okay. I like that. And this, that fits in with what we're saying. If you're exploring the path that you're going on by following your energy, then you you will go, you will uncover things you wouldn't have expected. Mm -hmm. And that's happened with me, with my podcast. I didn't, Five years ago, I didn't have an idea that I would have this Don't Tell Me the School in the format that it is. Mm. Um, whereas if you have a five-year plan, that's, that's some, an element of controlling. Mm. And so, yeah, I, 
I think, um, yeah, the more the, the, just it's kind of let go, surrender, yep. stop thinking that we're in the driving seat and just let life take us there and, and just try and be a willing participant who's not insisting that we go left when it's urging us to go right. Brilliant. And that leads me on to my next, but to talk a little bit more about your podcast. And, and again, I've, I've warmed so much to it. Like I said, I, I reference it a lot. I signpost parents to it. I signpost a lot of my You're a good man, Jesse. On it, but there, there's you bring so many different elements of it. So what really piqued my interest even more so was when you started talking about stuff like mindfulness, presence, Eckhart Tolle, et cetera, would you be able to share your experiences with these ideas and concepts and how you think it falls into everything you do at the moment? Wow, that's a good question. Okay. Well, Let's see if I... Thank you for someone who runs such an amazing podcast. I'll take that. <laughs> no, that's a great question. Um, little little um, sidetrack. So I was recently on John Kerwin's podcast. Do you know John Kerwin? Yep, I, I, I love it. I heard it a couple of days ago. I was I right. Was and so all black legend, a guy who, when I was growing up, was almost in the Boris Becker class of like, demigod and now i consider him like a friend i've i've interviewed him we've chatted on zoom probably four or five times this um lockdown and for him to say he, he referred to me as an all black okay and i was like that wow. is pretty that is amazing That's i think amazing. he was probably hamming it up but it was amazing now it, at the end of this i got into exactly what we're about to talk to which is non-duality and the nature of reality where perhaps um the human race currently has a slightly wrong paradigm and i was reluctant to i'm a bit like because it it goes against to some degree like i said the existing way of looking at things i could be a little bit reluctant to almost a bit coy about really going for it and a friend of mine um who actually is just a listener don't tell me the score and and i do like to reply to everyone who gets in touch and and this guy sent me this really long email. So we've become quite chummy because I thought he's taken more from my podcast than even I have. Like he remembers more. So I value this guy's opinion. And he said, don't, in in my advice, he said, don't be apologetic for your view of this. So with Love that in mind, here we go. Love it. Um, so, um, so basically, I think it needs a little bit of context, which is that, okay, the reason I'm interested in, a big part of the reason I'm interested in well-being, nature, reality, all this stuff comes down to the fact that I had some difficult times in my 20s. I had, as I've explained to you before we spoke, I went through a bout of really bad insomnia. Um, I got quite anxious at times. Um, I it just was, like I said, I think I'm quite sensitive to how I feel. So I wasn't one of these people who could just park it and... and drink through it or anything like that. I had to explore it and understand why I felt a certain way. So early on, I um, got in, I was one of my best friends used to take the mickey out of me because she used to say, oh, you know, I'm the guy who reads the self-help books, right? Funnily enough, now she's all over them. But but I was that person. I was looking for answers, uh, mainly to do with my own pain, shall we say. So I started out and I looked at things like NLP and which at the time was um, had some value, but not now something I particularly pay any attention to. And and I just kind of went down this rabbit hole. Mm. And then 
the truth of it is in about 2013, I had just had this epiphany and it was to do with some relationships that I had um, where I realized that they weren't going to change. And I, I think we often, particularly let's say if it's family and stuff like that, hope that other people will change and then everything will be okay. Mm, yeah. But actually I had this epiphany. They are not going to change. Okay. I have to change. I have to stop trying to mold the outside world to fit me. And I have to, to be sound cliche, go inwards. Right. Mm. And from that point, then I just had various um, serendipitous things kind of happen that led me in the direction of Eckhart Tolle and spirituality, which at the time I would have just said is like nonsense. So 2013, I was a really big fan of Christopher Hitchens, who's mm. a fantastic orator. I used to love listening to his rants against religion yeah. and would almost try and copy the way he spoke, right, sometimes. And so if someone said to me, oh, I, I'm spiritual, I'd be like, you're an idiot, okay, in my head, right? <laughs> yeah. But then I, like I said, just various serendipitous things happen. And and I came across then, I think Power Now first, and then his second book, which was the really one that, that hit me, which was A New Earth. And I had some various other quite profound experiences that perhaps aren't appropriate for this show. But um, but let's just say that they were they were fairly transformative. And I and and I just again probably had that energized feeling of this, this is this is what I'm looking for. Mm. It's not the kind of old rejigging beliefs or uh, rejigging or, or fixing myself, let's say, anything like that. It's looking actually at the at, at what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And so Eckhart Tolle talks about presence, talks about now, talks about us not being our mind and all this kind of thing. So I, I just just absolutely couldn't. My pa- it's funny actually. My passion for this kind of stuff is is akin to tennis. Oh wow! So, okay, so you go deep. If, yeah. Oh yeah, big time. Like now, so the two things I watch if I've got a spare fifteen minutes between running around after the five year old or running around after the thirty five year old <laughs> is um, is I'll either watch old Roger Federer matches, okay. or I will watch videos on non duality. Wow. So 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 okay. Very quickly, this is how I would describe it is that the we all what do we mean when we say i no so do you mind if i go please i want to go down this rabbit hole okay you want to go down this okay so what so we all say i i am hungry i am angry i am simon i am a tennis player i am a bbc employee i i i identity then are you putting identities on things Exactly. Right. So we, we identify the I, we identify it with an emotion, a thought, a feeling, whatever. So, so what, what actually is that I that we all intuitively know ourselves to be a child knows I am, let's say, and it's only later then that we, we put all these identities on. Hmm. And so Eckhart Tolle talks a lot about, we have roles to play, but they are not who we are. And a lot of people will, this is why I find it interesting that sports people, a lot of sports people when they retire have mental health problems. 
I think it's something like 50%, according to a survey done by the BBC. And, and a big part of that comes down to identity. Well, and Chris, sorry to interrupt there, but cricketers are particularly vulnerable, aren't they? I think the suicide rate in cricketers is the highest of any other yeah. sport. I mean, I would find that really hard. The amount of touring as well yeah. and just being stuck in your own head a lot of the time out yeah. in the outfield. But um, And so identity is this big thing. And then a common way of dealing with that that is prescribed, let's say, by a psychologist is have multiple identities. So don't just be a sports person, be a sports person, be a mother, be a brother, be a da 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 So you just identity, 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 identity. Mm-hmm. But the problem is every identity can go. Mm. Right? So, okay, to come back to the eye. So everything we experience is in life has an objective quality to it. So everything, a thought has, has you it has a quality to it. We might not be able to clearly define what it is, but but we we know a thought because it it it, it has the qualities of a thought. Yeah. Okay. Those qualities differ from the taste of tea, from the sight of a tree. Okay. So the things we experience in life are thoughts, thoughts, feelings. Mm-hmm. So I feel sad, I feel happy, I feel fit. we could say emotions, sensations. If I pinch myself, I can feel that sensations, perceptions, what I can see, what I can hear, what I can smell. So thoughts, feelings, sensations, perceptions within thoughts as well. You've got memories, you've mm-hmm. got stories, all these kind of things. Now, the thing, the thing is, all of these things come and go. So no one thought has ever cut, arrived and stayed forever. OK, I'm I no feeling has I'm angry. OK, the anger comes and then the anger goes. We're not always angry. I mean, we are on, on a spectrum, of course, but no one's always angry. No perception stays when w- this tree that I can see right now. If I go, that, that perception is going to go. Even seeing itself in the kind of um, through my eyes when I'm asleep, that that's not there hearing, so on and so forth. So all every thought, feeling, sensation, perception comes and goes. So all objective experience comes and goes. It's fleeting, as they say. So in Buddhism, they say the world is impermanent. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing, though, that is not impermanent, and that is the I, the I that we know ourselves to be. And that is that which is aware of all of those things. Mm. Okay. okay? So, so could that be classed as consciousness or, or is this not linked? to Yes, that? yes, yes. So, so, but, but OK, so what's another way of looking? I think, see, consciousness is a funny one because I think people have different definitions of consciousness. People say, oh, I'm I was unconscious, as in I was asleep. Mm-hmm. But if we think of consciousness, I prefer to a more simple way of looking at thinking about it is, is awareness. Mm-hmm. Okay? So if you have a thought now of your, your squash racket, OK, it pops up and there's there's the awareness there's the thought itself and there's the awareness mm-hmm. now they're not actually separate mm-hmm. but you could separate them and then the thought goes and the awareness stays throughout the whole of your life throughout the whole of my life that awareness has always 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 been there mm-hmm. even even when we are asleep and we dream there we are aware of our dreams mm-hmm. so the awareness itself never goes and that and the awareness the thing it, it sounds it's easy to to overlook it because we're so used to getting lost in objective reality. So getting lost in thoughts and feelings and sensation and perception, we're always out there. Oh, what can I see? What can I hear? What can I think? What can I feel? What can all of these things mm-hmm. uh, th- that we lose ourselves in that? 
whereas awareness has no objective qualities. You can't point to awareness. Mm-hmm. You can't. It, you can't describe that it. Okay, it the only th- the only thing we know about awareness are that it is aware and that it is. That's all we know. And so, because it has, it's it's really easy to overlook. But the implication of that is it ha- because it has no qualities. The awareness in me is the same as the awareness in you. It has no qualities. It can't be anything but just aware. Right. It's okay. just pure awareness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then that is, so that is where this idea of non-duality, which means not two. Mm-hmm. So everything in life has, a, has an opposite, should we say. Up, down, left, right, woman, man, um, you know, good, bad, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Awareness has no opposite. There is nothing mm-hmm. opposite to awareness. Okay, yeah, I mean, you could say that. not awareness, but it's, it, it's, it's the, it, Max Planck, who I think won the Nobel Peace Prize in not the 1930s, says, you know, consciousness, awareness is fundamental everything it, it, it's it the underlying strata of everything okay mm-hmm. now the current materialist paradigm is that awareness comes from our brain okay okay so there's matter and then there's consciousness so and matter comes first and then once matter was sufficiently built up suddenly out of it sprung awareness right okay, okay yeah now increasingly people so the great spiritual leaders down the years, including, let's say, Jesus. Now, I'm going to lose a lot of people here, right? <laughs> okay. But, but, and I'm not, by the way, I'm in no way religious. This is no. not a religious thing. This is an experiential thing. But because I think, for example, he, I think, same as, has been completely misunderstood. So he would say, I am that I am. Or before, there was a famous quote, before Abraham was, I am. So I am, I am, I am is awareness. Now, if I was to ask you, are are you are you aware? I would I would say I have a level of awareness. Yes, but, but you, 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 you can hear me now. Yeah, I, yes, I'm here and now and, and in this moment. Right. So so you we know that we exist. Even it's not something we need to be taught. So we know that that, that we that we exist. That, 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 and that is I am right. And um, so the whole thing about the I am is if. That the awareness that we are, the, the awareness that the I is, is easily gets identified with thoughts, feelings, sensations, perceptions, particularly thoughts. Mm-hmm. So that's where a self-image comes in. Right. So we start, we have this image of ourselves in our head, often related to the body, which also rises in awareness, by the way. Mm-hmm. And so we start to think of ourselves in, in that way. Now, the, how this relates to sport is so that in, in Buddhism, they talk about no self, no mm-hmm. self, no problem, right? So the self that we believe ourselves to be is the self of, um, you know, I'm Simon, I'm successful, I'm this, I'm mm-hmm. insecure, I'm whatever, whatever it may be. You know, this, in your stories, you're the creating. stories, just these stories that we hold. Yep. But but there is the, 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 the awareness that is aware of the story. Right. Mm-hmm. So once actually you strip back all the identity and just come back to the eye, there's there's nothing there apart from just just awareness itself, being aware of the play of life. Mm-hmm. Now, it, how this relates to sport, and you'll know this, okay, is how would you describe that experience of flow that you will have experienced? Like, what, what are the what are the um, what are the characteristics of the state of flow that you experience when you are doing something you love? For example, playing squash. 
the How one of you experienced that yeah i think i probably only experienced it once when i was playing competing and when someone asked me about it i had no idea i couldn't replay what was happening it, there was there was nothing there was no memory of what was happening that was in reflection but in the moment itself nothing could go wrong you know like there was just complete execution no thoughts everything that i'd done was there it was that classic zone it was view. just happening it's just happening right so it's it, and so you could say, and this, so Johnny Wilkinson, when he kicked the winning drop goal in 2003, he said, I could feel my leg going back. There was no me there. There was just a, an awareness of it. Okay. Um, Frankie Dettori, when he rode the seventh horse, exactly the same thing. Damon Hill experienced it when he was driving the car. Um, Let's talk about it like a slightly out of body. Like it's almost like out, out of body. So observing yourself just performing. So Goldie Sayers, she describes it as the beauty that she loved about sport was seeking effortlessness. Mm. So you're just, you're kind of, you, obviously you have to learn the skill, or whatever, but then it's almost like you're, you're there and you're, you lost, you, yeah. you lose yourself. Now the guy who's really looked into flow, he said there are well, two of the main characteristics. Of, one is a, a loss of a sense of time. Mm-hmm. And the other thing though, is a complete loss of self or self-consciousness. So you're not, so this, the image that we, the ego that we believe ourselves to be mm-hmm. the, the image we have of ourselves in our head, born of our identities, born of the things that we associate with, but born of the clothes we wear, the color of my skin, my gender, my thoughts, my beliefs, all these things, the stories I hold, my memories, blah, blah, blah. They disappear right. in moments of flow. Yeah. And we become, you could say we become one with the activity. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, so just to stop there one second, that's where I'm really trying to explore that, that field is going, yes, I think we understand it and you describe it perfectly and you brought it to life in a way. My big question is, how do you cultivate that? How do you, you know, that's, that's the, well, well, I, I think, I think that, um, well, just, just very quickly before I answer that. So, so the thing I would say though, is when people find something that they love, let's say playing a musical instrument or, you know, being with their children or being (laughs) intimate with their partner, whatever it may be, what we seek, the hint is that we seek the dissolution of ourself. Like that is, that is the state that actually the who who oh, I love being in flow okay well why do you love about it actually well I lose myself myself goes I'm not it's no longer this I have to defend this this sort of image of me so the the hint is that we we, we actually crave the self going the self we believe the small self going right and the same could be with like I said with music or whatever for me, this is why I love watching Roger Federer. When Roger Federer is in full flow, mm-hmm. you can tell when Roger Federer, when he's at his peak, it's like he's not there. It's just it's playing himself. And then, for example, when he lost to Djokovic, you could see he's, he's, he's start thinking. Mm-hmm. And the opposite of flow is choking. Mm-hmm. And, a, and a characteristic of choking in sport is being really self-conscious. Mm-hmm. So analyzing, analyzing, analyzing you're analyzing the, the thing. Yeah. And, and and Johnny Wilkinson again. You can anal- put it down to it means. So if you imagine a a kicker in a rugby match, right? The, the play's going. He's got the ball, been passed it along. He's really engaged. He's playing really well. Whistle goes, penalty. All of a sudden, okay, yeah. he's like, okay, it's on me. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to kick this. If I oh, what about me? Oh, the pressure's on me. If I miss this, the implications for me are X, Y, Z. So you could, he puts it that he paraphrased it down to the question is what about me? So that is, that's the essence of choking. So flow is about no me. Choking Mm -hmm. is about 
what about me? Mm. Right. So, so it, it actually hints at what we all crave is a desolation. So in terms of how then do you stabilize it in, in this state, if you like, <laughs> I mean, goodness, Jesse, I, I'd be lying if I said I, I got there, but this is, this is the essence of meditation. Mm. People think I think meditation now and at, so I interviewed Andy Puddicombe, the guy who set up Headspace. I was going to ask you about him because I just adored that interview. That was, that's my top one. I've right. saved that. Yeah, it's cool, that. right? So he talked about non, we spoke about non-duality, which I thought talk, spoke a bit about, took him by surprise. And he said, yeah, it's, it's not this far out feeling. It's just awareness. It's, and it's not like enlightenment's over there. It's, it's just seeing through the illusion that we are anything but that, mm-hmm. that the, the, um, the, so it's you could say it's about the meditation is to see through the illusion of 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 the self of the small self right so when mindfulness med- meditation let's say you're just let's say you're you're bringing your attention to your breath but invariably your mind comes in and and it's just there's just thought 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 and the whole point is not to clear your mind but to notice that you've lost in thought and to come back mm-hmm. and also each what we we just have this habit don't we of getting lost in thought lost in stories lost, and 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 the self by the way if you like this this the full self it's always in the future or the past yeah. so it's always stories about the past or hopes for the future which is why we're always like when we get the dream job the dream relationship the dream i don't know promotion the win the world cup then we're going to be happy right? yeah but never works never works out like that just well, ask johnny wilkinson why well, i'm so chris hoy his podcast i think he talked about when he arrived at that moment it was and he very much went along the fact you've got to enjoy the journey way more than that end moments and again that's one of the podcasts i t- give to all my juniors i'm going you got to listen to this guys because if you arrive at that moment of that thing you've been striving for but you've had a horrendous time along the way what is life that's 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 a shocker isn't absolutely. it? absolutely well that's what eckhart tolle says if you're we a lot of people could even die without living because they're permanently living for a future that will never arrive because when the future does arrive, it will arrive as now. So, which is just this kind of, you could almost say mundane moment, but we overlook the importance of it. So, so I just think your meditation is just seeing through that. There are lots of ways. I think I'm trying to do self-inquiry, which is, um, a guy called Ramana Maharshi. So he's this very famous Indian sage and he does something called self-inquiry, which is just when a thought arises, is to ask yourself, to whom does this thought arise? Okay. And then, so you can't, there is no, there is no, a thought just arises. We think, we think we're the thinker of our thoughts. Thoughts just arise. And and then obviously we're, we are aware of them. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm no absolute expert, but I know experientially, I know this, personally to be to be true and mm-hmm. and there are lots of ways of of um that sort of to back it up and increasingly it looks like science so there's this guy called bernardo Castrup. he worked at the Haldron collider and he says yeah the the what increasingly quantum physics all these things point to the fact that actually no we've got it wrong it's not that there is a world out there mm-hmm. and we're in here and it's no, it's just all mind. It's all awareness. It's all consciousness. Wow. And that's, Amazing. yeah. So it's like, rather than there's being this, this separate self behind the eyes looking out. Mm-hmm. So I, you looking at you, no, it's, it's actually an experience. No, all there is, is one big experience that includes seeing, that includes mm-hmm. hearing, that includes mm-hmm. thinking, that includes everything. And it's just one. 
Yeah. But we separate it out because of yeah. thought. Yeah. No, yeah. Can I just do one really quick experiment with you, yes, right? Go. Right. So here's here's so so we can see each other's faces, okay? So and because I can see your face, and and we've got you you could this is kind of analogous to, to a mirror. Mm-hmm. So because I can see your face, we're used to seeing other people's faces, and so therefore that helps us create the image of that we have of ourselves in our own head. Okay. okay? So because I can see your face and in fact, my own face, I I have this image of myself in my head. But if I rather than thinking of myself via because of the way I see you. So that kind of third person perspective, Mm -hmm. if I think of you and your experience related to my own experience of myself. So just for a second, look up at the ceiling. Okay, right. And just notice that, okay, you can't see your own face. Yeah. You can't see me. You can't see me. There's just a big open space that the ceiling's in, right? Got it. Do you see that? Yep. Okay. So that's exactly my experience too. So our own first person experience of ourselves is, is is if if we superimpose that experience on someone else, then it's really obvious yes. that, that that actually right. we, there, there's no difference. Mm-hmm. But we because of the third person with all these other identities that we see yeah. objectively that's what we start identifying with but actually if you just go back to that open aware space that is aware this is called the headless way by the way yeah, it's a book called I the headless way about to talk about the subject object you know there's the subject object and in, in some of the meditation i practice i i love sam harris's stuff and, and yeah. he's really big on subject object meditating with your eyes open and then turning attention back on yourself to yeah, yeah, yeah. that that like who who is the looker who is the seer who's the thinker and yeah it goes it's quite that's 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 a ramahana maharshi's thing exactly yeah it's it's yeah flipping it around so because we're so used to looking at objective stuff okay but what is doing the looking exactly yeah so it's so so this is this is a little experiment for from the headless way so it's like you point at what you're looking at so i'm looking at a a window on a flat over there so and follow my finger i'm looking at it and then Turn the pink finger around and look where it's looking from, and then you're like, oh, it, it kind of there's, there's nothing there apart from seeing itself. Yep. Yeah. So that. Sam Harris, all that. Yeah. I that. Think he, Sam Harris takes those learnings and just translates it into his own words. He doesn't exactly. He's done it, or he's the, the inventor. But yeah, the way he speaks and, and molds it is really good. And so he, funny enough, he was really good friends with Christopher Hitchens. He was one of because he's oh, really? he's a he's a really very anti-religion, hmm. which is that really is. I think really interesting because religion is and i think religion is often mixed up with say spirituality but it's it's not true so sam harris got a book called waking up and it's just say to see through this illusion that there is a self in 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 the head and to me that's all spirituality is so it's not this woo-woo type thing it's just looking at reality a bit differently than we currently do Mm. no listen wow there's so many interesting rabbit holes out just love where this is going and just on, on my own personal level this is where exactly squash mind is i've got that where where the whole seed of this idea formed about trying to train players in the mental state um you hear coaches talk about oh, just just play in the moment be in the moment be present but for me the question is but how can we just expect people to be in the moment with a click of a fingers under pressure if there's been no practice of this outside of that field? So hence, I'm trying to alert people to the fact of, you know, mindfulness. We need to, we need to cultivate a habit of practicing this stuff in our safe environment. So, you know, those neurons, those pathways start to get stronger. So when we're under pressure, 
you know what, we've got a slightly better chance of being in that moment, you know, our, our brain and we're cultivating that. And um, what do you think of that? The whole idea about practicing this idea of, of moments and staying present and the transference into the pressure situation of sport. I think you're absolutely right. Um, and there are more ways of doing it than just sitting and meditating for 10, 20, half an hour, whatever it is. And one of the best ways I know of that anyone can do any time is a technique that I told you about before we started recording. So when I was in my 20s and I had bad insomnia, I was taught this. It's an acceptance and commitment training technique, which is just that throughout the day, whenever you notice that you're thinking or that whenever you notice you're lost in thought, to just notice what the thought is and say to yourself, I am having the thought that, oh, I'm having the thought that I need to call Bob later today. Mm-hmm. So you might, or I feel hungry. I'm having the thought that I feel hungry. And, and whenever you do that, what happens is you untangle from the thought and you, you drop back into that place of awareness, which is where we want to be because then you you can respond it's about being responsive as opposed to reactive or being lost in in consequence and that kind of thing so that for me is a really powerful technique that for, for people who don't want to sit and do formal meditation practice mm. you just get in the habit of i've having the thought that mm. just you can do that anytime anywhere and that's a really really powerful technique and and i i use that if i'm feeling anxious say before giving a talk yeah. or if I'm serving at five, four, 30 all in tennis and that old um, habit of mind that I can have of bottling it, of being a bit choky. Oh, I'm having the thought that mm. I'm going to hit a double four. I'm having the thought that I'm going to mess this up. And then I'll just, after that, once I'm back in awareness, then I will come back into the sense of my body. Mm-hmm. When I'm, for example, playing tennis, what I will do is I'll feel my feet on the court mm-hmm. or I'll feel my hand on the racket or something like that. So that I'm bringing myself back into my body because in, if you're in your body, as Eckhart Tolle always says, you're rooted in presence, mm-hmm. but in thought, thought by a definition is either in the past or the future. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So that that's it. But then, then the other thing is, yeah, like you say, I think, you know, mindfulness training or just sitting mindfully and not to expect to clear your mind or have some profound experience, but to, just continually notice that you're being taken away by thought and oh thinking back oh right. thinking back so there's definitely uh, a lot of value in that where so where did you learn this because for me was this a bit of a process of self discovery or you know over years did you borrow from certain areas because the way you put that is brilliant you know i'm i'm having the thought that if i could you know get squash players or people that i work with in a sporting environment to 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 have that realization to ask that question and then bring themselves back into the moment with sensations can you expand on on how you came up with this process or where where it spawned from yeah so in my 20s um I went through a bad case of insomnia and it started at university the night before an exam, an important exam, and I couldn't sleep. And I'd never had that problem before. And basically it sowed the seed of doubt about Mm. sleep in my head. And what I've learned about the brain is that the amygdala, so the, the part of our brain that is basically an alarm system, a danger seeking mechanism, it is on the lookout for threats 
and obviously back in the day there were many and manifold they were saber-toothed tigers pillaging tribes next door all this stuff right so there's a lot to be scared of these days we don't have as much we live in a very safe world but the, the amygdala doesn't know that it this is we've got hundreds of thousands of years of, of evolution of being um just on the lookout for danger so it has no context now it does so for example you can think about a shark in the sea and that will get your amygdala going now there isn't a shark there but it will get your amygdala going probably not as much as an actual shark let's be honest but it still can have that effect so even just the thought about something that you're that that you perceive to be a threat or the, something you don't want your amygdala can latch onto that and and see it as a threat so it has no context has no sense of time it doesn't really tell the difference between thinking and and everything else right so i started to get worried about sleeping and over time it got worse and worse and i started then doing things like having hot milk and getting into this routine and you know i did a million things that i needed to do um you know i started taking things to help me sleep never a good idea and it got to a point where i was working at a radio station and um i used to i used to get up early and and go to the gym before work to kind of just get a sweat up and really um get my mind straight after a bad night's sleep or if i'd taken something to go to sleep or something and I was working at this radio station and I had to get up. I was doing the breakfast show, so I had to get up at four. And there are not many gyms open at four. So I thought, okay, I've got to do something about this. So I I looked at various things and I came across a guy called Guy Meadows, who now runs a sleep school. And he he introduced me to this. Well, I remember he really introduced me to mindfulness and he, he pointed out, right, so we have two, he described it as we've got two parts of our mind. One, we have the thinking mind that we're very familiar with. And then we have the aware mind. So mm-hmm. the, what we've already kind of spoken about, you know, the awareness and, and, and thinking. And, um, and he introduced me to the idea of going into battle with our thoughts and engaging with our thoughts. So for me, if I was going to go to sleep, I would find myself getting revved up before sleep. Mm-hmm. And I, my brain would be thinking, I'm going to have a, I'm not going to sleep well tonight. I'm going to, this is going to affect me tomorrow. And I would get in bed and my heart would be going. It was like I was going into, you know, play a deciding set tie break. Wow. And my body was aroused and it was in this state of, it wasn't in rest and digest. It was in fight or flight or because of my amygdala and, and, and I'm having these thoughts. So what he did was he, he taught me that I needed to basically show my amygdala that these thoughts were not a threat. So rather than battling the thoughts, and trying to get rid of them, perhaps trying to challenge them in the moment. Oh no, th- I, I I should be able to. I hope I will be able to sleep. Mm. Uh, the tomorrow will be okay. You know, go, getting stuck in this, you know, yeah, thought, thought on thought, thought on thought, thought on thought, right? Which just yeah. revs it up. It's worse, doesn't it? It's just oh, when that happens when you're lying down. It's just yeah. yeah. Um, and so just a quick, actually, just a quick um, example of when this really. So 2012 Olympics. I was um, I was covering Super Saturday for Five Live, and I hadn't done Five Live before. And I was in the fan park, and they were like, oh, "We're coming to you live after Mo wow. Farah's race on right? Super Saturday, the first Super time Saturday. Five Live and Super Saturday, one of the greatest nights in yeah, yeah, it was unbelievable, right? 
and I knew they were coming to me live and I knew it was, it was, I was outside of my comfort zone. And anytime you're outside of your comfort zone, you're going to feel feelings of anxiety and stress because you're not used to it. So I had these, I could feel this kind of fear, if you like, rising in me about this, um, about doing this super Saturday, uh, live interviews. And I tried to suppress it and I tried to rationalize with it and I tried to get rid of it. And all that that did was, I mean, it built and built and built, built, built. I almost, I wanted to run away. Actually in the moment it was fine. The adrenaline kicked in and everything was fine. Often the way, right. But now what I've learned is, is by, by using the technique that guy taught me for sleep, I could use it in a situation like that, which is, so if I was lying in bed and and having the thought, I'm not going to sleep or tomorrow's, I am having the thought that I'm not going to sleep. I'm having the thought that um, tomorrow is going to be bad. It's almost like you're welcoming the thought rather okay. than going into battle with them. Mm-hmm. You're, you're welcome. Oh, hello thought about, Oh, hello mm-hmm. anxious thought. Come on in. It's mm-hmm. fine. So by doing that, you're, you're, you're accepting it and you're welcoming it, which is if you imagine it, your brain is then saying, Oh, hang on a sec. He's welcoming this thing, this thought. It's not a it threat. can't be a threat. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And in time, it doesn't, it's not like a quick fix like that. It, it takes a bit of time because obviously your amygdala mm. learns to get threats like that and then it tapers off a bit more slowly. But mm. you're just continually, Oh, hello. Hi, yeah. stressful thought. That's hello. Awesome. Come on in. Welcome to the party. Join me. <laughs> Come in. Have a cup of tea. And in doing that, you're teaching that it's not a threat. And therefore, yeah. the anxiety levels drop. So now, if I go back to that London 2012 example, whenever I've done live broadcast, I still get those, oh, those thoughts come up. There's no stopping them. But now it's like, oh, hello, thought. Welcome in. Oh, hello. Yeah, come along. And now it's almost like you can actually turn them into, into power for a good performance. Nice. So you talk about reframing. Rather than seeing them as a threat, it's yeah. an energizing thing. Michael Johnson, the Olympic, I was about to, I was about to say, he told me. I love it. Yeah. He's got so many good things on that. And pressure he, and pressure. He, yeah. He, yeah. He said the thing he missed most was being in the call room and feeling nervous. Mm. So you can actually use that as a positive energy. Obviously, you don't really want it when you're trying to sleep, but say before a broadcast or before something else, actually, that adrenaline, rather than being scared of it, mm. what you want to do, you can, if you can welcome it, you can harness it mm-hmm. and, and get it to work and, and for you. Um, and you know, adrenaline, as Dave Allred says, can become fuel for a great performance. But it's just about reframing it and making friends with uncomfortable feelings and thoughts, which are a completely natural part of the human experience. So that that's so curious for me because, in one way, it sounds like you are inviting that thought in, but equally so, you're distancing yourself from that negative thought. But it's almost can I call it a trick where it's kind of going, Hey, I'm welcoming you, but actually I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to react on you. Obviously I, you've heard about right distance yourself from your thoughts, but you slightly reframe it and do it the other way. Is is that how you think of it? Yeah, I think so. I think it is. I think it's, it's welcoming. So the analogy guy used way back when was um, imagine like two warring countries next to each other. Okay. It's, 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 it's rather than going into battle with them, Mm-hmm. or it's or even you know having a cold war mm-hmm. anything like that it's it's kind of accepting that they do their things their way and you're accepting that they're trying to accept so it's living in peace by accepting that the way they are mm-hmm. um so yes i think you know that's perhaps not the best analogy in terms of welcoming but yes i think it is it's, it's understanding that negative thoughts and negative feelings are not 
actually negative. They're just thoughts and feelings. It sounds more and like that they are, doesn't it? Would it be you know, that, that word acceptance? I think is quite. It's, it's, it's acceptance. So that's why it's called acceptance and commitment training. Yeah, well, welcoming and accepting them and befriending them. I think is the key thing. Mm. And that doesn't mean that you're then engaging with them or or getting wrapped up in them. It's just like, come on in. It, um, you know, have a seat. It's not have a seat and let me talk to you. Mm-hmm. It's come on in, have a seat, make yourself at home. Yeah, I've got no problem with you. You do your thing. Come on in, it's fine, all good. And I'm, but but I'm just busy being present, type thing. So it's that kind of attitude. Yeah. Well, no, that that's got me really thinking about how to help my players and maybe do some lessons within the app to to get that. And and I've just written down, you know, I'm having the thought that dot dot dot. I think so that's powerful. Such a powerful thing. So thanks for sharing. And, that and just and if you can take that even further, which is that right? So this idea a lot of people have, and that I certainly have, that that there's something wrong with us, that we're broken, that you know, like we're insecure, whatever it may be. And that we want to, like I said, when I started out doing NLP, I think a lot of that was around, I I need to fix these things that are not quite right about me. No, no, no. It's accept. So this is why I talk about something I'm very passionate about, the difference between self-acceptance and self-esteem. Self-esteem, right, is is valuing things, or you could almost say rating things, Mm -hmm. okay? I, I, I esteem my ability to be good at playing tennis, okay? So you're trying to improve what how you are at certain things i'm this is what i'm really good at my i've got high self-esteem when it comes to talking in a podcast whatever it may be right self-acceptance is understanding that we've got good points bad points strengths weaknesses and they're all fine they're completely normal and we just accept everything and that actually it comes back to that awareness thing we have an innate value anyway you sit with a baby that's born right? You don't look at a baby and think, oh, they need to add anything or subtract anything. We have an innate value. And, and actually, then we just have various things that we've been conditioned along the way, prejudices, other things, mistakes we make, all part of being human. We accept the whole lot rather than try and be like, no, I need to be, this is what I'm good at. And I'm going to reject this part of me that I don't like. Mm-hmm. So self-acceptance over, over self-esteem. So it's all about acceptance yeah. and awareness is accepting of everything. <laughs> oh man, Simon, honestly, I could probably sit here for another three hours, yeah. go down these rabbit holes. I've got questions on, and I'm not going to initially do it because I'm conscious of your time and how don't general, worry, don't stuff worry. about balance, gratitude, um, morning routine, habits, behaviors. You know, I, I, the, the, for me, there's so many rabbit holes I want to go down. But um, in closing, I've probably got another couple of questions if you're okay to sit with me for a little bit oh, more. Yeah, 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 fine. Um, I'm fine, yeah. Which I, honestly, I've, I've just enjoyed this so much. And hopefully it's an excuse that we can have another chat at another point but sure um, sure sure i love ch- chatting about this stuff yeah you can see you get passionate and again it's just it's, it's making my juices flow as well but um <laughs> look i it sounds like you've got a really interesting part of your career coming up um i'm sure you'll get them on your show but and and you know based on your track record of the amazing guests you've got but who are your top few guests on your list that you're most excited to make contact with and an interview uh in the next whatever short-term period um it's a good question, actually. I'm, I'm, <laughs> because you're right. I am, um, I am shifting. So I am taking my um, don't tell me the score with me. So I'm taking it off the BBC, and I'm going to be um, taking it onto different platforms and kind of owning it in time, so that it coincides with when my book comes out at the beginning of 2022. Um, so I've been really focused on that, and I was actually thinking of sitting down this afternoon or over this weekend and, and coming up with a, a top 50 list and, nice. and start getting getting on it because actually I haven't really been um, chasing guests a lot recently. 
Um, so off the top of my, well, no, off, if, if I can have dream guests, Roger yeah. would obviously be up there. Big Rog. Um, <laughs> I would, uh, I would, I'd like, I'd love to chat to Eckhart Tolle. Mm. I don't want to have J- Johnny Wilkinson back on. Um, who else? Uh, Bernardo Castro. Um, from a sporting, from a sporting sense, it's funny actually because um, I'd like to get more into some of the American market. I, I'd really like to chat to Michael Phelps. I think he's an mm. interesting guy. You know, he's another one who's achieved so much success, and yet it hasn't satiated his internal disquiet. Ian Thorpe, another one. Mm-hmm. Um, on, on Michael Phelps, I, I, I'm, I'm really researching and, and trying to get the, the science behind a bit more visualization and, and trying to get athletes to visualize more and, and how it become efficient and not a burden. And Michael Phelps is such a pro- proponent of visualization and he gives some really good interviews about his process and um, how, you know, he had rehearsed it to the perfect degree. The well, his his goggle came off, didn't it? Yeah. Yes, exactly. But I think there was, there was quite a story about that. I think, um, I think his coach started to develop this idea of uh, what did he call it? Um, sabotage training. So actually his coach would actually change the training environment, actually give him dodgy goggles, give him swimming trunks once. And so he was preparing this, but he apparently used to go through slow-mo replays. We're talking like an hour before bed and an hour when he wakes up about exactly how he walks into the arena where he puts his stuff. And actually that's a whole topic that I'm really investigating and visualization could be really huge as well. Yeah, absolutely. Visualization is um, something that comes up a, a lot. Sam Warburton said a similar thing. He would visualize himself in the first person. He'd visualize it from the opposition. He'd visualize it from the ref, from someone in the stand. And then he'd say when when it happened, it was like it had already happened. Yeah. Nick Faldo actually is fascinating on this. I did a whole episode with him. In fact, he told me a brilliant story, right? So, so Nick Faldo, he is a commentator in America, uh, on golf has been for 20 odd years. And so I can't remember the name of his co-presenter, but basically when he, he was at, um, he was at college in America, this guy, G- I think Jim is his name. And he was at college with Fred couples in, in the eighties, let's say. And they used to visualize together Fred couples winning the masters and this guy, Jim interviewing him. And no. 30 years later, it happened. No. Now you can ch- talk that down to completely, um, you, you know, you could talk that down to luck, whatever, but that's brilliant. Interesting here, Nick Fowder has a lot of these things like okay. Nick, 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 Nick on visualization. I'd really recommend listening to the episode okay. I did with him. I need to. He, he, he's got loads of stuff on it. Yeah. I've got a section on Spotify with um, podcasts to listen to. And I reckon you, of the maybe 50 podcasts I've got, <laughs> I reckon you feature in 85% of those. Of the ones I've got to get to. That's too kind, Jesse. I appreciate that. On the other side of things, I've got most impactful podcasts. So then the ones that I share, and again, you know, um, you genuinely get on those a lot. So oh, and I, on a personal level, my favorite ones, um, I love the Ryan Holiday Stoicism one. Oh, yeah. I practice brilliant. that every day. I've got my book and I think he was brilliant. Andy Paddock. Yeah. Um, yeah. so Chris Hoy and I, the James Kerr legacy I, I just love the way he talked oh, about yeah, yeah. that accent. was one of the really early ones he's a great guy James Kerr nice. Such a, yeah. what so, a talker you yeah, know, I wish I, I, he was, I wish I had his eloquence you know he yeah. is really he, just a lovely fellow actually we spoke for about an hour after we'd stopped recording he told me some great some real off, off the record stories that oh really yeah, it sounds was, like well right. the key is like JK you had a chat with him and then you know oh. they, they seem to talk really well don't they they just yeah. got well, Kiwis uh, yeah I mean I think the thing about John Kerwin in particular is if you go through a difficult time like he went through, mm. oftentimes it's a real blessing because it 
deflates perhaps your ego and makes you more compassionate you have to learn to be compassionate to yourself to other people a bit more understanding and mm-hmm. um he was fantastic but a lot of them are like that i think a lot of yeah. will carling for example just real quick he he you know he he had a really rough two years after he retired he the tabloids were after him and he said looking back he's really grateful for that because it made him um you know it completely sucked the ego out of him and he was one of just one of the nicest guys mm. that i've had on i love chatting to will and he's he's one of these people he's, he's not identified with his old oh i used to be a rugby player no, yeah. he's, just, he's just big he calls himself big fat uncle bill <laughs> and he, you know and he's he's just a fat fat child to his um who, who loves his family you know it's, yeah. well it relates a little bit i got bought um the ego is the enemy by ryan holiday at christmas and i've read i've read the obstacle is the way and not got to the ego one and yeah just on a personal level as well just just having to just check that ego sometimes is, is so important and those experiences. But um, in closing, it sounds like you've got a really interesting little period ahead. Um, you're writing your book. I've heard there's obviously some frustrations with that. You've set up a company. Um, can you talk on what the, the near future holds for you and, and how are you feeling about it? So what, yeah, yeah, it is an exciting time. Um, I just felt that um, I need, I wanted to be master of my own destiny primarily and the podcast is sort of going well and i really sort of have married my interest in terms of sports but marrying it with stuff that's a bit more important i think around well-being all some of the things we've spoken about today um so yeah i decided to to go it alone so i've I've set up my own company the company's called monday monday al my other half came up with that so which just means monday worldwide in spanish no one's got it yet everyone's like monday mundial but anyway we're sticking with it so and yeah i'm making a load of um podcasts and audio for lots of interesting people which is which is a really good fun thing to do yeah trying to finish my book the deadline's the end of end of february um i'm on the last chapter of the first draft, but then I'm going to have to go back and edit. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's just a relentless process and just trying to unpick the things that, so even the stuff I've spoken about today, trying to actually put that in coherent terms is, is hard. So in a way I've been quite fortunate with lockdown because, you know, I'd written 2020 off to actually be forced to stay indoors has been in a way a little bit of a blessing without being flippant about a really hard situation. Um, so the book and then yeah, launching don't tell, taking the don't tell me the score, like I said, and, and um, going to be launching that hopefully get to do Wimbledon this year um, as a reporter, more TV stuff. Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's an exciting time. It's, um, it's going on my own learning the joys of hmm, accountancy or, or rather <laughs> the keeping tax records, all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, it's fun. It's, and um, you know, you credit where credit's due behind every great man is a either is a great woman or man um and she's uh she's definitely uh she's definitely supportive in that way amazing and uh and is is a, a great help in, in terms of just giving me bits of guidance here and there so it is an, it is an exciting time but yeah the book's out beginning of 2022 and it's it's um it i'm trying to the, the message of it really is what we've spoken about a, a bit today which is really that th- this obsession with winning this idea that when we win, whether that be at sport or with the job or with the relationship, whatever, that, that that's where salvation and satisfaction lies is a myth. Mm-hmm. And actually, like you say, that it is the journey and or, or being present and um, 
understanding not getting lost in thought and uh, understanding fear and not giving into fear and following your that which energizes you i love that i'm definitely using that (laughs) i'm gonna go back and tweak that chapter imminently um so um, the the working title it may change is think like a champion but actually it's a bit misleading because i want it to kind of really reframe Mm. this idea that that it's about winning more it's about of course you want to Understand that you have an innate, innate value as a human being. That is, you can't, that can't be, you're no better or worse than anyone else. Even the biggest celebrity down to, you know, the person who is least value in society, there is no difference. Yeah. And that frees you up to have a growth mindset to really try and follow your passion, take risks because there's nothing real at risk. Mm. And the joy is in the doing, not in the arriving. That's the kind of the key message. So, the, the title itself is somewhat misleading, if you okay. like, intentionally. Yeah. yeah. Um, wow, Simon. Well, by any viewing your track record and what you've done in your life and the way you speak and your passion and your energy about things, it's only going to be a massive success, I think, what, what I can see from you. And what I'm, I'm going to be one of the first to sign up for those books because as a oh, coach, Jesse, you're I'm a good trying, to, trying to get into those, you know, the... the, the Again, we didn't even re- we touched on it, but those stories and how we make these beliefs come to life. It sounds like part of that book is addressing that. You know, you're 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 the biggest celebrity or the lowest person in society. You know, we're all the same, and how we can go along that path. And all I can say is, is, is a massive thank you for your time. I know you got a young family. I was actually really curious about your daily habits with a young family. We'll get onto that at some point. It's been an absolute privilege an honor for me. Um, and yep, like I, I can't wait to get this out there because I know a lot of people are going to love it a bit. So thank you so much, Simon. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. Jesse, it's been a really lovely chatting. Yeah, let's let's pick it up again in future and do part two because there's a lot we haven't covered. <laughs> there's a huge amount. Thank you very much, man. Cheers.